This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunen here. I'm the co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. I'm especially excited for today's guest, Ellen Bora. She and I go way back. We actually went to college together. Before we dive into our college reunion, though, I want to say a quick thank you to the Diamond Producers Association, who are bringing you today's episode. The jewelry women wear is entirely personal, and it's often the story behind the diamond earring, ring, or bracelet that makes the piece all the more important to us. For different newsletter stories, the Goop editors have interviewed women about the first natural diamond they ever bought themselves, or the most special one. Sometimes these self-gifts were a long time coming, and others happened seemingly on a whim. But they all ended up marking a special moment in time to celebrate. Why are we drawn to natural diamonds in this way? I think part of it is that they come from the earth, they're rare and finite, and of course beautiful. And as someone who leans toward minimalism, I think it's also because diamonds are one of the few things that become more valuable to you the more you wear them, because they're timeless. To learn more about natural diamonds, visit realisadiamond.com. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound. It's limitless. But we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves. And that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Ellen Vora started with a BA in English at Yale, went to medical school at Columbia, and years later found herself a holistic psychiatrist. She's an acupuncturist and yoga teacher too. Today, she takes a functional medicine approach and uses it to target mental health. In our conversation, Ellen shares with me her wisdom on how anxiety and depression can be treated through diet and lifestyle. She's a big fan of a detox, which shouldn't surprise anyone. We also get into SSRI tapering, what withdrawal therapy is like, and what a coffee enema actually is. One of our favorite cube topics is the mind-gut connection, and Ellen is an expert on it. And when feelings get thick and 
juicy and poignant and exquisitely human, we're so conditioned to think like, make it go away. There, there, you'll be fine. Don't cry. Be strong. But instead, like be what we would call not strong, like which I think is so much stronger, like be with those feelings and let them wash over you. Let's cut to my chat with Alan Bora. So thanks for coming. I love our reunion. So people who are listening should know that Alan and I went to college together. And we were both English majors. Yes. And we knew each other. I knew you about as much as I knew almost anyone because I was so... I just didn't socialize in college. This is news to me. Yeah, no, I just, I kept to myself. Huh. And now we've been reunited through Goop. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, I emailed you when I was passing through LA. Yeah. And I suggested a play date, but I totally had ulterior motives. (laughs) (laughs) As you should. No, I've been keeping my eye on you and watching your work. So so you left Yale. With your English degree, mm-hmm. which is very useful. So useful. All the jobs were like, do you guys, do you want to come be like an, a post-English major here for us to, to earn us money <laughs> thinking about Milton? <laughs> yeah, I wrote my thesis on Milton and Marvel, and I just found it and didn't understand a word about it. <laughs> All right, so you leave Yale. Mm-hmm. You go to med school. Mm-hmm. And now you're a holistic psychiatrist. So what happened? What happened? Yeah, so... I, a lot of people go to medical school really driven and sure of that process. They're like, well, my father's an orthopedic surgeon, and I know I want to be an orthopedic surgeon too. And I went because I didn't understand how to become a backup dancer on In Living Color. Those were the Fly Girls. And I assumed, like, I was good enough. They would just approach me and say, like, do you, do you want to come dance with us, white girl? And <laughs> that never happened. So plan B was med school, and I went forward with that. But I was pretty alienated. So probably week one of med school, I knew I was not exactly cut from the same cloth as most people. But I'm bad at quitting it. So there's inertia. It, they even make it a little difficult to quit. I went and had a meeting with my dean, and I was like, I'm not sure this is right for me. She's like, sure, sure, okay, you can quit. You just have to go to this meeting and have this mental health evaluation and you know, meet with this dean. And I was like, well, that's too much. I'm overwhelmed with my studies. And so I just kept going. It felt like the path of least resistance was to just become a doctor at that point. <laughs> Plus great. we had paid for it. So, you know. so I just kept going forward. And what what was the call? I mean, I remember we graduated at a time of financial insecurity mm-hmm. where everyone, because that was sort of the path, right? You became a consultant or an investment banker, and they were recruiting anyone, including English majors. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. our year was the year that they rescinded offers. That's right. So I remember being dumped out and not knowing what I was going to do. And of course, it seemed like I didn't do the pre-med so that was not in play for me. But I was like, do I go to law school? Like, how do I, what do I do? So was it, were you motivated by a desire to heal? Were you motivated by financial security? Like, what was the call? Mm-hmm. And and most normal people listening to this would be like, why don't you just like Google career possibilities? But it, that actually did not exist at no. the time. We're V old. So I, I knew that I was always into the brain. Yeah. I was always into the brain, like in a very nerdy way in high school, I was into the brain. And then I was an English major undergraduate, and I was into the human condition. So wise people around me were like, you might want to be like a psychologist or maybe a, you know, a psychiatrist. And I was like, no, none of that feels right. I don't see that happening. But I trusted enough that I maybe med school was keeping options open. And that's why I went forward with that. 
And then throughout med school, it was really grim for me. The whole process was hard. And I did not know what specialty to choose. I was mostly running from pain rather than toward a career I felt passionate about. For the most part, I was thinking, like, this is hurting me, and I just want to survive. So I took years off. I did a research fellowship, which is a great way to look like you're doing something to pad your resume when actually you're just recovering from burnout. Mm-hmm. And then I met a woman named Deborah Cabanis, who was a psychoanalyst at Columbia. She had a really big influence on my process. She had been an English major at Yale as well, and she really showed me how you can explore the gray areas of the human condition and still be a doctor. And so that helped me say, okay, psychiatry feels like the best fit I'm going to find. Psychiatry residency was not psychoanalytic training with Deborah Cabanis. It was just (laughs) four years of being trained to put people on higher and higher doses of Zyprexa, an antipsychotic that causes obesity and drooling. And it kind of just is like a sort of a frontal lobotomy. And what happened was I, the whole time, felt like this is wrong, this is wrong. But I had slightly better coping skills at this point. I had found yoga. And rather than just hiding from the pain, I decided I'm going to keep pursuing things that did feel true for me. Mm -hmm. What I was being trained to do, just someone comes into my office, I translate their symptoms to a diagnosis and translate the diagnosis to a medication. That felt wrong. So instead, I became a yoga teacher, and I studied functional medicine, and I studied Chinese medicine, became a medical acupuncturist, studied, just started hoarding trainings so Mm -hmm. that I could practice in a way that felt in alignment. Yeah. It's interesting, too, just thinking about your educational pedigree and how important that is too for your work in a really fucked up way in the culture. Exactly. But it is, it is very important for people to say, Oh, I go to this psychiatrist who went to Yale, went to Columbia for med school and she's tapering me off of my SSRIs Mm -hmm. because it immediately in some way distances you from any associations of like, Oh, you're just a quack who doesn't understand science and isn't well-trained. It's so fucked up, but having this pedigree has given me the liberty to take just to be very pioneering and rebellious about psychiatry. And people trust, and I think for some good reason, that I have the authority to say, I know that approach, and I'm choosing to do this instead. Mm -hmm. I wish I could give advice to people who are passionate about holistic psychiatry. They want to approach mental health the same way I do. Part of me says, you know, you could save yourself a decade and six figures of debt and just, you know, become a health coach. Right. <laughs> but it's not the same because people do want the pedigree in order to feel comfortable going out at the right. end of the branch. They want to under- know that you understand that which you are rejecting. Exactly. So I, and I think this topic is, and, and we should talk about SSRIs and tapering, and I know that they are effective for some people. Clearly the people who probably find their way to you or someone like Kelly Brogan have decided that they don't like the side effects or that they're not working? Mm. Is that fair? It can be that. It can be a philosophical choice if I don't want to be medicated anymore. Sometimes it's somebody who wants to get pregnant and doesn't want to be on medication. Sometimes it's a guy who's having erectile dysfunction. Right. So unwanted side effects, wanting to be a different way. Yeah. So are you, and then I know you will keep people on medication if it's Sometimes. Yeah, I'm a little bit more moderate in that way in the world of like Yahoo psychiatrists. <laughs> but if I, I, I'm playing the slow game with patients, I want someone to thrive in their life in one way or another. And for a lot of folks, they're not actually ready to do the process of 
going off of medication and everything that entails. So I'm not going to say then I won't treat you. I'm also not going to say, well, you need to do that or else leave my office. It's more like, okay, well, then let's work slowly. Let's increase your, the nutrient density of your diet, maybe decrease inflammation, maybe do a little gut healing, maybe some acupuncture. And then four years later, they're all, I want to get off my meds. I'm like, oh, really? Goodness me. <laughs> and then we do. So what does your practice for, let's take a, I know this it isn't, doesn't exist, but let's take a typical person in your practice who want, maybe a woman who wants to get pregnant SSRI free mm-hmm. or free from Xanax or whatever mm. it is that because I also want to talk to you about anxiety. What do you, how do you do that? How do you, and I know it's very individualized, but what, where do you start? Yeah. So where do we start? It's, we start by taking a deep breath. It can be a beast. And all of this is really complex because with everything with mental health, suggestibility matters quite a bit too. And I'm always trying to ride a fine line between validating someone's experience that it's difficult getting off of these meds because for the most part, the deficit we have as a culture is that nobody's talking about that. Mm -hmm. So someone might have tried going off their effects or cold turkey and have all these wacky symptoms. They tell their psychiatrist, they tell their primary care doctor, and they are just faced with so much dismissive attitude towards it. Basically, this is not a thing. This is in your head or kind of worse. This is a relapse of your disease. So Mm. you just need to go back on the medication. It was clearly working when in fact this was withdrawal. So everyone's dismissing withdrawal. So I really like to validate the experience of withdrawal. And I like to put a little bit of the fear of God in people about the upcoming withdrawal if we're planning a taper so that they will prepare their body. They will take the process seriously. But you have to be careful because you can also kind of put people into a little bit of a fear state about it. And people are suggestible. And so you can also almost someone who would have just gone off meds on their own, they might have not been overthinking the whole withdrawal thing. It might actually impact them less because of that. Right. That makes sense. But I think if you give people sort of the beginning, middle, and end, and Mm -hmm. the sign points, and the idea that this is a temporary, if painful, journey Mm -hmm. to a different way to be, then that seems much more surmountable than just like, you're in the shit. True. It can be a wild path through the jungle though. So what we do in the cut and dry sense, we prepare their body. I like people to follow something approximating a Whole30 diet or at the very least a very paleo template real food diet. The reason we do that is to decrease inflammatory stimulation to their body, but also to increase the nutrient density of their diet. What we're really doing is rebuilding receptors and neurotransmitters in the brain. And like the little men working up on the neurons, like they need building blocks. They need raw ingredients. And that comes from food. And at best, like we are, like with all of this emphasis on clean eating, I think so many of us are missing nutrition in our Mm -hmm. diet. We've at least gotten to a point, I don't know, for better or worse, where culturally there is this focus on clean eating and taking out inflammatory foods. So that's great. The piece of the puzzle people are still mostly missing is the nutrient density of food. So you can be eating a perfectly clean diet and be B12 deficient, zinc deficient, not getting enough protein. Your thyroid is out of whack. You're losing hair. You're fatigued. You're not sleeping. So a lot of my patients, especially women of reproductive age need to increase their red meat consumption, healthy fats, but we need to broaden our understanding of what a healthy fat is. It's not just avocados and olive oil. It's also the fattier cuts of meat, as long as that meat is sourced well, eating the skin when you eat wild fish, eating the skin when you eat poultry, Mm -hmm. um, really like lots of juicy fats in your diet. 
And people, a lot of people still need more carbohydrate than they're getting, but we need to rebrand what's the right way to approach carbohydrate. We think um, you either just malign carbohydrates altogether or you binge on refined carbohydrates like cookies, crackers, bagels, pasta, but actually you want to eat starchy vegetables. So I'll just change someone's diet where they're actually getting enough and that sends a signal of safety to their body and it gives them the raw ingredients to rebuild. We'll do that for about a month in preparation and I'll get someone in the habit of doing detoxification mechanisms. That's a little bit of a controversial charge concept, but basically when you know our body does have natural detoxification mechanisms our liver detoxes and we need to support that when we're getting off of meds because it gets burdened in that process so i'll have people start incorporating dry skin brushing and epsom salt baths and for some people jumping on a trampoline for a lot of people starting the day with a glass of water with lemon and then once we're tapering i usually want someone to be doing one of the hardcore ones on an almost daily basis and that's things like infrared sauna or for some folks a coffee enema i know (laughs) i i mean people swear by them there's it's Really interesting. Not yeah. something I want to participate in. I do want. I'm. I'm trying to get a sunlight and sauna in my house. Usually, you make yourself a guinea pig from most things that I we know. cover here, right? I'm not into the butt stuff. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Heard it here first. <laughs> not my bag. But I. What is it in the coffee? I have trouble explaining the magic of the coffee enema. I have trouble convincing patients to do it as well. But some people who are really plugged into the withdrawal world swear by it. So basically, I think it's actually just a very provocative enema. It really stimulates the colon and you have a big evacuation. I think that's the main reason it works. There's a lot of theories about the coffee stimulating the liver and the gallbladder to contract and then you're sort of like dumping some of the sludge Mm. that gets stuck there. Some people say it stimulates a particular nerve bundle at this flexor point in your colon that's actually a parasympathetic nerve bundle so you're relaxing the body. Maybe it works in all these ways. I'm not sure. But you think that's better than a colonic? I think it's different than a colonic. A colonic, I'm usually not recommending, especially if we've put all this work into building this nice old growth forest Mm. of flora in the gut. I don't really want to wipe it out. But for someone who's been blocked and just chronically constipated, sometimes as an initial reset, it can be fantastic. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. And how, for your patients, once it's assumed they can get through withdrawal, like how much of this how much of the depression that you see in your practice is solved by these biological factors mm. and the rebalancing? And then how much of it is therapy and mm-hmm. maybe a sort of reconciliation of trauma? Like what's, what do you think that that, obviously it's a very complex pie. Yeah. What do you, what does that look like? So for me, it's funny. I'm, I had a new patient in my office yesterday and he's been through the whole mental health world many times. And so at the end of it, we talked for a very long time. And at the end of it all, he's like, so what's my diagnosis? And I said, sort of trying to be witty, I was like, oh, I don't do that. (laughs) And I really don't at this point. So the DSM, I think of as like a brochure, just selling pharmaceuticals. And when I really think about depression, anxiety, bipolar, We brand people with these heavy-duty diagnoses. We say, this is you, it's genetic, it's a chemical imbalance, it requires this medication for life, you're broken, you need me, and I, I don't buy it for a second. I think human experience is full of suffering, it's full of a range of emotions, and that's fine. 
getting stuck in one particular position, one particular emotion, that's what's not fine. So I do think we need to move the energy, we need to flow, but it's not the way we think about it. Mm -hmm. I think, yes, there's a genetic component, but all that ever was was a vulnerability. And we, there's always the environmental factor. They say genetics loads the gun, environment pulls the trigger. So a lot of people, it's purely environmental control over how their mental health manifests. So we'll change their diet, we'll heal their gut, and then suddenly their immune system has calmed down, their body's functioning better, they have the proper nutrition to function optimally, and then they're not depressed, anxious, bipolar anymore. But then there's also trauma. Trauma is enormous. And for that, I like people to be in a good treatment, not necessarily therapy. I think we have a feeling of trauma you want to talk about and rehash, and I think that can actually be very problematic in trauma treatment. That can be re-traumatizing. So usually I want something nonverbal. I like EMDR for trauma. I like somatic experiencing therapy, and I like a lot of energy work for that. So that's a, a major factor. And sometimes it's You know, in a way, I mean, there's hormones, there can be thyroid issues that are masquerading as mental health issues. In a way, just the way we think about it, there's no hope to that. Mm -hmm. We just say, you are depressed, this is the depression, and that's your destiny. And to me, that's just a call to action, to do investigative work about your physical health, about what you've been through, about your thought patterns. And then... Also, it's it's asking us to listen, right? These mm-hmm. symptoms are really a beautiful, brilliant body's way of communicating to us. Anxiety is a big one these days with that. These are our canaries in the coal mine. You know, our feelers and our artists, they're the ones who are most anxious right now. And their body is telling them something's fucked up yeah. and something's not safe here. And I think that... We want to medicate that away or sort of misogynistically tell those women that they're just crazy, but we should be honoring that. Like that's telling us something important. I think there is some urgency about us turning aspects of how we're all living as a human society. We need to turn it around in some areas. So, you know, it's something to listen to. No, I totally agree with that. I think it's interesting too, what you said about your patient and that question of what's my diagnosis. I think we live and I, and it's very human and I do this as well, but it's this constant, who am I? This self-diagnosis, this bucketing, this, I think really trying to understand our role here, our greater purpose. And it comes out as sort of, what's my sign? What's my, <laughs> what's my, diag- my mental health diagnosis? What's my personality type? Mm. How do I socialize? And I think my it's Ayurvedic this, dosha. Exactly. Mm. It's this, I get it. It's deeply, profoundly human this desire to understand ourselves and what we're here for. And I think we try to find it in books, but I think it's, you have to go in inside really, I think to, to get there and that's the deeper work. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, right? We're just not taught these days to feel our feelings going inside, being still. Oh my God, these days, nobody wants to be still ever, you know, could you imagine being stuck on a line waiting for something and not having your phone? It's like, oh God, you know, it's a panic attack for people. So we're just really even increasingly uncomfortable with just being still, being present with our feelings and, and that going inward. But in a way we can all work at this. This is being still, it's kind of as easy as you choose, you want, you commit to wanting to make this work. You're waiting online for the bathroom. You don't have your phone. Okay. Like stand there and breathe Mm -hmm. or observe what you see around you or reflect on what's on your mind, make space for that. And when feelings get thick and 
juicy and poignant and exquisitely human, we're so conditioned to think like, make it go away. There, there, you'll be fine. Don't cry. Be strong. But instead, like be what we would call not strong, like which I think is so much stronger, like be with those feelings Mm -hmm. and let them wash over you. It's ocean waves. It's very water-like. And I think we also harbor a fear that if you go into these, like the heart of darkness of these feelings, that you'll never come out, that you'll Mm -hmm. go down a deep hole and never be able to reemerge. But I think it's really the opposite. I think the less we try to strong arm and white knuckle, the more we actually flow with it, the more we can flow in and flow out. It's our resistance stance against our feelings that actually makes us get stuck in places. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Just a second, we're taking a quick break. I believe that jewelry stores energy and emotion and that certain pieces of jewelry can carry subtle messages with them. I think about this with diamonds, which are, of course, such a symbol themselves in our culture. At the end of the day, natural diamonds are really gemstones that nature has been creating and forming and shaping for billions of years. They are inherently rare and finite, and in their DNA is a pretty incredible history of the earth, which is one reason why it's important that they're recovered responsibly from the earth. When you hold a natural diamond, you're essentially holding a wonder of nature in your hand. And I like that diamonds become more valuable and meaningful over time. They're durable and they never lose their brilliance, which is not the case with most things in life, right? I think this is all part of what makes a diamond a compelling gift to give yourself, whether that's to celebrate a life milestone, like a birthday or a new baby, or to mark the beginning of a new job or relationship or the end of a significant project, or, you know, just because. To learn more about natural diamonds, visit realisadiamond.com. Okay, let's hear more from Ellen Vora. This is one of my favorite Brene Brown concepts, but it's the lack of emotional literacy. I think that so often we don't even know, and I'm very guilty of this, there are times when I don't even know that I'm having a feeling, Mm -hmm. and I'm not even aware of it. And I was talking to this incredible healer named John Amaral, because I feel anxiety in my chest, and you mentioned Mm -hmm. sort of somatic experience and the way that we feel our feelings in our bodies or how they show up, and he was talking about anxiety and I have a, I have a hyperventilation disorder, which is the worst. I mean, there are Mm. certainly worse things to have, but it can, it can persecute me for weeks. Yeah. And anyway, he was, he said, I believe, and I'm inclined to agree with anything that he says. He said, I believe that anxiety is just 
unprocessed sound. Oh, I love I'm, that. Right. And it's Say just, more. What does that mean? That I, that it's that stuffing, again, going back to the stuffing of feelings, the way that as children, we, we let it out. Mm. And mm-hmm. then as adults, we're conditioned. I don't even think we're aware of it. Like, that's the thing. I, I would love to know, be in line at Starbucks and be like, oh, wow, I'm feeling nervousness or I don't even know what I'm feeling. Right. But for him, he believes that it is, and particularly for women, an inability to express how we're feeling mm-hmm. and the stuffing of that over time. And it's just bawling. It's just a ball of energy, unexpressed energy. Yeah, because it is. I mean, sound, it is all energy, vibration. Like, it sounds so woo, but it's actually physics, right? And so when you feel these feelings, and as women, we are in, as Brene Brown would point out, like a straight jacket of expectations on us. And we're feeling so deeply, but you're also expected to be caretaking for everyone around you and always be nice and keep it together and don't be the crazy girl and, you know, and Mm -hmm. don't certainly don't be full of rage. And so, but these are going to happen as part of going, as a human being, especially if female human being going through this world but we don't have the outlet for just letting that vibration leave our bodies it looks too messy too scary too weird the people around you would say like we have to do something which kind of means like medicate you or inpatient hospitalization well it's very human to want to solve problems right yeah and to want to solve each other's problems and i think the intention is kind and pure but at the end of the day you're the only one who can really do it for yourself And I'd qualify, it's human, but I think even more so it's masculine. Mm. And we just happen to live in a very long era of where we celebrate the masculine at the expense of celebrating the feminine. We need both, you know, nothing against dudes. They're great, but we need a balance. It's a yin and a yang. We need the divine masculine and the divine feminine. And we are so in a moment where anything that makes someone phenotypically feminine, that's a negative connotation word, right? So like a high-pitched voice, that is worse than a low-pitched voice. So women really kind of get the that end of the stick there. And just all the ways, the traits that make us feminine, those are considered negative societally. So in a way, even we women are kind of conditioned socially to want to fix problems. But I would love for more of us to tap within and recognize we can all be midwives. Mm -hmm. I love the midwifery analogy for this. Like the masculine approach to childbirth is like, holy shit, that woman is suffering. You know what? Let's do something about this. Let's cut that baby out. Let's just end this. And the more feminine approach is, mama, you got this. Breathe. I'm right here. And then you go in the corner and you knit for like nine hours. You know, looking over once in a while, Adula's there doing you know, healing touch and making sure this woman feels supported, but you're not trying to fix the problem. You're holding space for the problem and you're letting, we are letting each other move through what can be really challenging in this life. But that's what we're missing is holding space for us to each go through our challenges properly and to actually complete the cycle. We rush in and try to fix. And sometimes in mental health, that actually means medicate someone out of a life event, Right. you know, grief, divorce, all of these things that we go through that we used to have no choice but to labor through it and then have the baby in the end. Now what we do is we sort of numb ourselves out of that. We numb each other. And there's no blame here, right? I, don't I mean, I had a very traditional and I childbirth and I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get that. It, it was, I had a, a spiritual breaking as a, as a holistic psychiatrist who has been in the position of 
being with people who are withdrawing off of meds and they're saying to me like, Dr. Vora, you don't understand. Like sometimes you just need relief. And I'd be like, no, 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 you're fine. Midwife, midwife. And it took labor for me to get to my own breaking point and be like, shit, I want that epidural. Yeah. You know, and this was after all the books and all the preparation and home birth and doula, et cetera, et cetera. Birthing is very humbling. Yeah. It's super humbling. Yeah. And it's sort of a psychedelic experience. Like it's kind of the teacher that yeah. gives you the experience you need. Totally. Yeah, so I, I stretched my ability to empathize with my patients through having that experience. But I did want to point out, there's no blame in that numbing, right? right. Like, these are well-meaning citizens. These are well-meaning doctors. Everyone doing this is really trying to help. There's no moral failing in any of this. It's just that I'm recognizing a problem with how we all have a tendency to practice and how, to, how we approach mental health. Yeah, and I think it's terrifying. You know, I have friends who are bipolar, who are married to people who are bipolar, for example. And that is, a, it's a terrifying diagnosis. And they would like nothing more than to mm. find some sort of solve. And it seems to be one of the diagnoses that's completely defying treatment. I mean, I know there's like a cocktail of things that you can take to manage the symptoms, but... Yeah, well, I think one of the problems there is that bipolar, it's sort of by definition, like the rubber band got snapped or the pendulum got pulled in this way and now it's swinging back and forth. And our medications themselves, even the mood stabilizers that are by definition trying to stabilize that, they sometimes behave like something pulling the pendulum mm. as well. You know, So they, they're kind of playing a role in that, especially things like benzos, that's things like the benzodiazepines like clonopin and Xanax, Valium, they are, because there's interdose withdrawal, you might be perfectly benzoified after you take that dose and for maybe six or seven hours afterward, but then you're starting to withdraw from it. That'll vary based on how you metabolize it and what your tolerance is. But so basically then you're in interdose withdrawal on a day-to-day -day basis and that's just exacerbating. It's, you know, totally... Mm stoking the fires of bipolar. Yeah, bipolar, I have exactly, of all the, I've put so much content out there because I really want to share this gospel that there's a different way to look at mental health. And I have two videos that have resonated for people more than anything else. One is on all things benzodiazepine withdrawal. Um, the other is on a holistic approach to bipolar, which is a really underappreciated concept. And this isn't like, go try this at home, but I think at least ways to think about it. I've always thought of bipolar as a cousin of seizure disorder. Mm. They sort of similar medications work for both. Some mood stabilizers are also anti-epileptics and they have a similar quality. A manic episode is almost like this protracted seizure. You're in an altered state. It's almost like altered brain waves. And I draw a lot of, from the playbook of Alternative approaches to seizure disorders can be helpful with bipolar. So I like my bipolar patients to keep rock-solid, stable blood sugar. I want them to be really replete with minerals. I want them to take a lot of magnesium. I want them to be really steady eddy with their sleep habits, like early bedtime, consistent sleep, and then really nothing that's going to pull the pendulum. So things like alcohol, benzodiazepines, cocaine, like all of these things that really pull the pendulum, it's sort of like I think that that's a... It's not negotiable when you're trying to approach bipolar holistically. What about marijuana? Yeah, cannabis is... I've learned now to say cannabis. Oh, sorry. So, well, did you know why? Oh, no. I like the reasoning. So, Because of the endocannabinoid system? Okay, no, like that's a, that's a reason, but it's actually that marijuana, the term, I believe, was sort of created to make us fear it more, to make it seem sort of 
Spanish, Mexican, scary, mm. you know, drug lords coming in. And so, um, so cannabis, why not? Okay. My more woke friends have told me to say it that way. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think it's good medicine. I, it's, it can be really good medicine. CBD oil, hemp oil, cannabis, all has implications for refractory seizure disorders, and I think also for certain bipolar situations. Yeah, it seems to be one of the few things that helps Mm -hmm. My friends who are bipolar. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we should generally reframe our view on cannabis. Like I have so many patients like straight edge, you know, I treat a lot of lawyers and they're like, well, I, I don't, I've never smoked pot before. Why would I start now? It's not so much that everyone should try it, but that we should just think of it as one of our many herbs and plants that can be a medicine yeah and the idea too like i've never smoked pot why should i start now yet i am taking benzos Mm -hmm. or whatever is so funny to me most of us should reframe that if something's fda approved that that makes it somehow (laughs) safe like i really am very wary of pretty much anything fda approved right and there's a lot of corruption that goes into that system so plants are generally safer that doesn't mean it's always safe in all situations it's still we should approach it with the same caution and gravity but that those are equally legitimate options. Yeah. So anxiety, what, because you were, you were getting profound there and then I, we changed direction. So <laughs> let's go back to that. And what, what do you think that our anxiety is telling us and how can we do a better job of listening and then how can we liberate it from our bodies? Yeah. So I, well, Here's a less profound view, but it's important for people to hear. So I take the first approach I take to anxiety is a body-based approach. I think about the physiology of anxiety. That's the low-hanging fruit. A lot of people can chip away at like sometimes 75 to 100% of their anxiety just addressing the physiology. So that's things like some of this, everyone's like, sure, sure, okay, I'll try that. And some of it I like lose friends over, but let's start with the no problem. So keeping blood sugar stable. So much anxiety is just the blood sugar roller coaster. And every Mm -hmm. blood sugar crash causes a stress response in the body. And for some people that feels synonymous with panic and anxiety. And as Americans, we're running around on a blood sugar roller coaster. So our diet is built on a foundation of refined carbohydrates and sugar and you know, milkshakes masquerading as coffee drinks and rosé. So we are all blood sugar up and down all the time. So the definitive solution is you rehabilitate your diet to one that's blood sugar stabilizing, like a real food, paleo template diet. The hack is to use something like coconut oil or almond butter. Just take a spoonful at regular intervals throughout the day. Mm. For people who wake up in the middle of the night, that's sometimes a blood sugar crash. So for them, a spoonful of coconut oil before bed and then upon waking in the middle of the night. Caffeine is a biggie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is the least drinking away? <laughs> so caffeine, let's just recognize it is a drug. It is an anxiogenic drug, which is fancy for anxiety generating. Um, and it's not all bad. You know, the studies really make it look very positive. It decreases Parkinson's disease and type 2 diabetes and suicidality, has antioxidants and magnesium. That's all fabulous, but we all metabolize it differently. And I suspect that the people who come into my office with anxiety are the lucky ones that metabolize it slowly. So we're sensitive to caffeine. So if you are sensitive, just be honest with yourself about that and adjust accordingly and don't make rapid sudden movements around caffeine. You don't want to just cold turkey go off of it. Like any drug, it has a real withdrawal. So you gradually, I took like a month to go from a cup a day of green tea down to nothing, reducing it by just a few sips at a time. So I was sensitive and I was getting headaches and I was not a happy camper if I was going faster than that. So I went slowly. 
But for a lot of people with anxiety, that's a big change. It's a hard change. Nobody wants to make that. They're like, but coffee's my only friend. And I love, you know, going and the cute barista does the pour over. And it's like my favorite thing. It's my favorite part of the day. It's the ritual I look forward to. So then do decaf and drop the caffeine because it's probably contributing to your anxiety. The other one that's not fun is alcohol. We should probably just not even talk about it. But it's one of those drugs that lifts our GABA is the most important neurotransmitter when we're talking about anxiety. And it's sort of the neurotransmitter, the chemical messenger in the brain that makes us feel okay. And when we drink, it increases our GABA, just like clonopin. They're like second cousins. But it's a bad drug in that afterward it drops us lower than we started. Mm. And the body likes homeostasis. If it gets too much GABA, it starts to board up the receptors. It starts to make it so if a leopard ran around the corner, we are not just going to be chilled out and drunk. So the body reclaims homeostasis by boarding up GABA receptors when there's too much of a rush of GABA. Mm. So you kind of want to build up your GABA the old-fashioned natural way, like breathing exercises, yoga, not being burnt out and overstretched and stressed, really good nutrition, really good sleep sleep and rest, like that's actually how you have a healthy GABA system in your body. We get it by these artificial means like clonopin and alcohol, but it drops us lower each time. Then we just need it more. And like the pharmaceutical and like spirits industries love this because it makes us great customers, but it makes us pretty anxious, unhappy people. Mm. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, my caffeine definitely feeds my, and sleep, it's like, it's a combination of sleep deprivation, which obviously drives my caffeine consumption, plus any sort of stress. I've never been able to pin it to any particular stressor, but, and then it's a vicious cycle. Sleep is my favorite thing to treat because there's all of these kind of, there are these things that we're not even aware are making a big difference with our sleep and they're pretty easy adjustments to make in our lives. So Pretty much every single person at this point keeps their phone on their bedside table. It's your alarm clock. It's also just like your extra appendage. And a big intervention that makes a difference with sleep is just get the phone out of the bedroom. Mm. Set up your charger in a hallway outside the bedroom. You can adjust your settings so calls from favorites or double calls would still break through. You know, you're not going to miss an emergency call, but you're not going to have the proximity to those dings and pings and the proximity to this little box that we associate with so many things that are not conducive to sleep. Mm -hmm. So we associate with work stress and with geopolitical news and social media and online dating. And all of these things are stimulating. You know, some are rewarding, some are stressful, but none is soporific. And so you want to get it away from that zone where you, you need to go to quiet your mind and rest. So the phone off the bedside table, everyone's like freaking out, like, what? it's my alarm clock, what do I do? And you actually can go on this little known <laughs> website called Amazon.com and you can just buy a $10 alarm clock and then problem solved. And if you snooze, you set two, you set one for the time you absolutely have to get up and then you set the other for about 10 or 15 minutes before that. And then you've even rehabilitated your snoozing habit a little bit or at least reduced it down to two alarms. And then for a lot of us, light is a really important factor with sleep. We evolved our circadian rhythm. It's programmed by light. And that was a foolproof system on the proverbial savanna because it was light during the day and it was completely dark during at night. And now nighttime is like this, you know, chipsicle or light show where we're you know, we have a laptop open and our phone right here, and then there's a tablet and you're watching Netflix in bed and all the lights are on full blast overhead. And all of that is just basically suppressing our ability to secrete melatonin, which mm -hmm. is the hormone that lets us feel sleepy. 
So the best thing to do is actually simulate darkness in the evening and, and, you know, even down to the last half hour before sleep, make sure you're not going into the bathroom to brush your teeth and flipping on the bright light. Maybe it's like a dim light in there or an orange night light or even a candle and you have a nice Epsom salt bath by candle. It's very boys to men. It's like a great way to <laughs> set you up for sleep. And then you, you know, that's actually the best way to get sleepy. And I also think a little known fact, and you have kids, so you understand this, people get overtired. Kids get overtired. We know yeah. that. You learn this when you have a kid, the hard way usually, that if you miss that window when they're sleepy, then they're suddenly like emanating heat and inconsolably crying and they'll never nap and they'll never sleep. Totally. So adults have this issue too. We miss the window. For most people, it's about three hours after sunset. That's when we're most tired and that's kind of the appropriate bedtime. We usually think of that as like an egregiously early time to go to bed. So that's when we're falling asleep on the couch and we're like, oh, this is just, you know, the first wind of feeling sleepy. Yeah. And then we get up, we have a second wind. Suddenly we want to clean the kitchen and do projects and surf the internet for hours. And then by the time we've gotten in bed, we're overtired and we're pushing against a wave of cortisol, stress hormone in our bloodstream, tossing and turning, trying to sleep and feeling frustrated. Like, why am I not sleepy? I was tired all day. But basically, you've trained your body to think, we're staying up past the point of tired. There must be a good reason. And your body's a really very overzealous employee. It's like, okay, Captain, like let me secrete cortisol because tonight is the great migration. And so we're pushing against cortisol when we're trying to fall asleep. Yeah. So a lot of us need to get in bed earlier. No, it makes sense. And I think good sleep, again, with children, good sleep begets good sleep. Mm -hmm. There is no version of, oh, I'll shorten the nap to make this to make sleep better at night, et cetera, maybe yep. when they're older. But it seems like that's a fatal mistake. Totally. Yeah. Although I find in parenting, rather than sleep begets sleep, it's more like random begets random. Like, <laughs> just constantly <laughs> changing, but it's humbling. Oh, <laughs> man. And, but I will say from parenting, I think you also learn the value of sleep because sleep deprivation is a mental disease. Like I go batshit crazy yeah and yeah. everything falls apart and everything feels extreme and untenable and hard yeah it's like the most important medicine and I say that sometimes about a few things like you could say that about exercise or meditation or at this point I'm saying that about plant medicine but sleep is probably the most important medicine and it feels good and it's free and it makes you live longer and it improves every situation we're struggling with in modern life, but we just need to set up the conditions that make it not a struggle, where you fall asleep and stay asleep deeply. Thanks for listening to my chat with Ellen. You can learn more about her at ellenbora.com. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.